This is Joe Bob Briggs, and you're listening to Without Your Head. Welcome to the Station of Decapitation Without Your Head. I'm Nasty Neal, and I'm joined by the returning Debbie Rashawn. It's very cool to have you here. Well, thank you for having me back again. Yeah, you got a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. You got uh, Bloody Ballet is coming out. I think it is out on, on Video on Demand, and it comes out on DVD in December. December 4th, it hits the physical world. Right. right now, it's in the internet kind of streaming world, and you can see it right now. But if you want the physical hard copy, December 4th is the day. Right. So how did you get in? Oh, actually, before I ask that, about uh, the physical copy and, and video on demand, uh, someone who was uh, around for, like, uh, the heyday of, of DVDs and, and tapes and stuff, uh, what are your thoughts on video on demand? Well, you know, it's surprising, but... A lot of my friends who love physical media are getting into the video on demand because what they'll do is they'll buy a movie and it will live forever on their TV in in whatever way that it does. I don't do that myself, but Uh they seem to be perfectly happy with that. And then what they'll do is just have certain movies that they collect physically and they'll have, you know, whether it's uh, TV series or certain movies, they'll have, you know, living on their TV mm-hmm. in there somewhere. Kind of, you know, to me, it's like a big mystery. It's in there somewhere, but they can get to it. Um, right. So, you know, it's not something I do, but it's really popular. So, I mean, when something's going that way, I mean, you can't buck it. 
Yeah, exactly. It's weird on the TV shows because I remember when you, if you back in the day, if you wanted a TV show, you'd have to buy like twenty VHS set uh, VHSs of like one season, and uh, it'd be like you know impossible to have like a whole series of a TV show. And now you can have them all on like one disc or like, or you said just all online. Yeah, exactly. Uh, a friend of mine um, waits till the season's completely over. And then he buys the entire season, and it's usually on sale too. So, yeah. you know, if you do it that way, you can get a pretty good, uh, pretty good cost. And then you don't end up like someone like me, who has an entire room, top to bottom, <laughs> that has physical media in it, and it's basically more their apartment than mine. <laughs> I'm the same way. Just even right to the right here, I have a big pile of. Uh... <laughs> Of DVDs. I just swim through them. What do I want to watch? Well, I'll never find what I want, so I'm just going to stick my hand in this pile, <laughs> and then whatever comes out, that's what I'm watching tonight. Yeah, and then sometimes it's easier just to look it up online than it is to go find your DVD. And then I <laughs> <laughs> it's true, it's true. But, you know, there is, you know, for collectors to get things signed or, oh, sure. you know, you like to see, you know, you like to, like, I like to put um, sections, you know, by director and stuff like that. So, I mean, that, that sort of thing is fun. But if you don't care about it and you want to live, like, very sparse mm -hmm. in your house or apartment, then, you know, VOD's fantastic. So, I guess, you know... We have to embrace it and, you know, just be thankful that people are, are you know, they dig it and they, they watch movies that way. Yeah, definitely. I like, uh, I like commentary tracks, so that's why I like to get the DVDs. The yeah, movie. yeah, it, it's the, exactly. I mean, and all the extras and everything. I mean, I never listen to the commentary tracks until I've seen the movie at least oh, sure. a few times. Because honestly, I still... No matter how many movies you make, I still like the sort of mystery of the movie, mm -hmm. and I don't really want to hear about like the inner workings or or how they did something or if everybody got along smashingly or whatever the case may be. It could take away from it, like, especially if you have like characters that have a lot of tension between them. If you hear them on the commentary track or see it behind the scenes, and they're like yucking it up. It kind <laughs> of, yeah. I'm not buying their, their rivalry on screen. I agree. And then there's uh, uh, some trailers give away uh, way too much now. I just, when I was at the movies not long ago, they were showing uh, the new trailer for um, uh, Glass, Mr. Glass. And like, it seemed like they showed the whole movie in like two minutes. Yeah, no, exactly. They, you know, so many movies are like that because if, if it is just about, you know, what's going to happen and you're not seeing a movie for like, you even know what it's about, but you just want to watch it play out. Or maybe you're into really into the director's work or a certain actor's work. It's kind of like, yeah, you see the trailer and you, you've kind of already got it, you know, yeah. and, and especially going to the theater, if it's $40 for two people to go, for example, if you buy popcorn, I mean, you may not end up going to see the movie, you know, Mm-hmm. So, so bloody, I agree. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So bloody ballet. How did you get involved in bloody ballet? And also, it's a it's a different uh, different role than a lot of yours because some of your stuff is like over the top, kind of silly, and uh, it's a very uh, seriously acted role. 
Right. No, it's it's funny because, you know, I totally get that. And I actually love that people, you know, watch the really ridiculous fun ones. But it's funny, like before I get into bloody ballet, it's I'm not I'll counter you. I'm not going to disagree, but I'll counter you with the fact that I've done more serious than I have comedy. But people see the comedy more. So that's why, right. while it's a cor- correct perception, it's not like it, a, an actual accurate one, if you know what I mean. Like I've I done gotcha. so many serious roles, like Color from the Dark, American Nightmare, Exhumed, all these movies that are very, you know, m- very much a reflection of the director, like really amazing movies and, and very serious. Uh, mm-hmm. But the other ones come to mind, and that's certainly not a bad thing. So with uh, Bloody Ballet, um, I was first contacted by uh, Matt, the co-writer of the movie, and um, he contacted me a couple years ago and, you know, loved the script. I thought it was great and never heard anything about it. I totally forgot about it because I get a lot of scripts. And then suddenly Brett was like, picking up the the torch, so to speak, and was going to finish it because they had shot a certain amount and they needed sort of the, you know, I don't know how much he could tell you, but maybe the last 30, 40% that they they shot, you know, in sequence. Um, and so that's, that's when he contacted me. So it was two years later and, and I was kind of scratching my head like, what movie is this again? Um, <laughs> and he, he was calling cause he was like, you know, yeah, Matt really wanted to have you cause we didn't know each other. He said, Matt really wanted to have you in the movie. And you know, so what do you think? And so I had to go, you know, back and everything. And I was like, yeah, 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 absolutely. Let's do this. So, um, cause the script is always like, really awesome like it was so cool and and you know i've seen a little bits and pieces of his work see he does a lot of uh you know dp work for documentaries and stuff so i knew that he totally knew what he what he was doing like he's a he's a total pro but then you know when when we shot this and just seeing how he was lighting and and the camera shots and the he just he kind of blew my mind like i hadn't seen that sort of style i wouldn't say details a lot of directors i work with have the detail but i would i would say that particular type of style and interest in a certain sort of uh musical beauty if you will uh since like i worked with ivan zucone in italy or stefano milla in italy so it was kind of perfect he was doing a giallo throwback mm-hmm. uh because i thought he captured it great yeah, and uh, by, by the way, uh, if the original poster is awesome, and it definitely has the, the giallo feel to it, uh, I, not that the new poster is bad, but the uh, the original uh, artwork is, is amazing, which is up on the IMDb page. Yeah, yeah, I know. Well, that that's what happens. Like distribution companies sell the artworks up to them, and the title change is up yeah. to them. I mean, unless you get a really amazing um, dis distributor that knows you well you know if you're first time working with them it's so common that they'll change the name and and all the artwork but i loved i loved the original title and the original artwork i thought it was beautiful but you know i i guess high octane had to kind of you know make it a little bit more 
I certainly don't want to say dumb it down, but I, mm-hmm. more appealing, more mass appealing than something, yeah. you know, Phantasma. Well, what's that? You know, but mm-hmm. okay, bloody ballet. Well, we got that. We know what that's, you know, it's mm-hmm. bloody ballet. Okay, so we, you know, it's more palpable, I guess, for the average Joe, I guess. Yeah. That's yeah. how they think. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I love the original artwork. I love that stuff. I mean, it's just, you know, it just, again, it incorporates another, you know, group of artists, which is the poster maker. You know, and I think I love that stuff. I love all the departments of art making a movie. Mm-hmm. So uh, playing a, a therapist or doctor, uh, did you uh, base that character off anybody else or, or any doctor you knew or anything? Um, you know, I could say that, you know, I based it on all of my multiple therapists my, <laughs> that I've seen. <laughs> uh-huh. I Which, noticed hey, like. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. maybe I did. <laughs> but what did you say? You noticed? I was, I was like halfway through my question. I thought, well, this makes it seem like Debbie's seen like a lot of therapists in her day or something. Yeah, <laughs> how? Are it. you kidding right. me? Are you joking? <laughs> Absolutely. Are you crazy? Because <laughs> apparently I was. No, you don't have to be crazy to go. You could just, you know, I've had enough like pretty traumatic and hard times. You know, I've, it's, it's a good thing. I mean, it's funny too, because um, not to get off the topic of bloody ballet, but you know, you go through a lot of stuff and when, early on when you're studying, especially the method or something like that, you know, that you see so many actors, they don't want to go to therapy because they don't want to ruin the angst that they have, that they've, it's you know, experienced, <laughs> yeah. they bring to the, the you know the roles that they play but um no no i i you know certain points i think it's a a definitely an, a necessary thing to do as it is for the ballerina in the movie to come and see me i wouldn't say you know i wouldn't be my first choice i'm not necessarily talking about that character but considering all the roles i've played like you know i'm kind of like the well not exactly like the dr loomis but how often do the therapists get so involved in someone's life that they, you know, become part of the climax of the movie? But that's actually the, one of the coolest things that drew me to it. That, you know, okay, it's not going to be another character sitting behind a desk for a couple of scenes and then you're out. Mm-hmm. You know, you actually are, you get into a little bit more of the flow of it and the finale and everything. So that's what really appealed to me regarding this character. Mm-hmm. That's true. When actually, when I was watching it, and you first pop up, I did kind of think, "Oh, well, uh, maybe uh, Debbie's in it to get her name, on, you know, uh, on the movie." So you know, people, hey, we know Debbie Rashawn, but no, you are a big part of uh, the movie, and like you said, uh, a big part of the finale of the movie. Yeah, I like to think so. I try anyway, mm-hmm. but it's it's a great, I, you know. And the funny thing is, I can only talk to you about. Um, my experience making the movie because I haven't seen the movie yet. Oh, okay. I've only seen the trailer and I obviously know the story, but Mm -hmm. you know, and I was there for the shooting days, but I haven't actually seen the movie yet. So I don't know what's there and what's not, but it was, you know, we, we did, it was a very intimate working situation. Mm -hmm. Well, what what did you think? With the other actors. What did you think of Kendra, who plays uh, your patient, Adriana? 
I had like two phenomenal, like really phenomenal, an exceptional actress. Really, just, just um, so detailed. You can just tell when you're working with people uh, if their main concern is the material first, mm-hmm. their what they can bring to it and improve upon, and the details of their character. If these are things that that interest them and drive them you know they're really good actors. And if they're not already a great actor, they're going to be a good actor because um, it's the actors who really just use everything as a platform for themselves or their ego or something like that. You know, it's not not as much an artistry approach, but mm-hmm. she was just, you know, all about doing every everything possible to uplift the film and her character. So... I, I have nothing but great respect for her. And, and from everything that I've seen, I think she's truly amazing. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier about, uh, you know, you get a lot of uh, scripts and, you know, you had a, this one you got like two years ago. So how, how do you pick which movies you do? What, what do you look for in them? Well, you know, the, thing, the truth is I don't look for budgets so mm-hmm. much. Like I'm not, you know, the budget doesn't scare me off because I know a lot of uh, directors work with very, very minimal. They can make it look like so much more. And if they have a great story and very importantly, a great character that I could play and uh, do something different, do something that's, you know, multi-layered if possible, or if it's comedies, do something completely outlandish and fun. And these are the things that I look for. Um, the stuff that, you know, boring scripts, um, you know, two-dimensional scripts where, you know, everything's paint by numbers, um, you know, characters that are just complete throwaways that really you could just, anybody could play them. And anybody can play a character. They would just play them differently, for example. But if it's just sort of, a, like I say, like a, a one day you're sitting behind a desk kind of doctor, well, okay, that's fine. But, you know, then the pay's got to be there because it's, it's not, it's not a, um, you know, a passion project for me. So mm-hmm. I would just say, you know, the script and the character, that's, that's really what gets an actor excited. So that's what I look for. That's what I look for. And it doesn't always pan out. Like not all the movies come together because, you know, you're not um, in charge of the whole movie, just what you do in it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So not all the movies actually come together, piece together and pan out. But uh, the ones that do are remarkable. Mm -hmm. Is that ever disappointing if you if you do something, you think this is really good. And then uh, either the way it's edited or score, whatever reason, you know, uh, the final piece is, is not what you expected. Oh yeah. I mean that, that's, that happens often. It sometimes because in your mind and, and if you've done enough movies, you kind of know where the camera is. You think they're capturing your performance. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're really not, they don't capture any of the performances that well. It doesn't just have to be your own. Um, and, it could, it could be like it could have been all there, but just in the way that it was captured, it could be lost. You know, it could be like almost there, but yep, didn't make it, didn't make it. Because everybody's, everybody's got to be on point. 
And if and if there's little slips slip ups here and there, it could be from the actors. It doesn't have to be like the DP or something like that. Or maybe mm-hmm. there's a, a singular part of the movie that's not completely strong script wise. You know, then that's when the great editor comes in. So everybody who's part of the process on you know in the chain gang, if you will, there's there's can't be a weak link. You know, and if there is a little bit of one then it can be overcome by the other departments. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, even the makeup department, and I'm not even talking about the special effects makeup. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I did this one movie where I was playing this um, mother of, of a character, and it was a really juicy role, but she was like a real, like, you know, trashy, trailer trash, uh, you know, bar hag type of character. But the makeup artist just insisted, and again, the, uh, it's this is a lesson that I have learned. Like if if you know if you know something in your gut, you have to stand up for your character. It's not even you, but the character, because I let her be the deciding factor in the hair and makeup for this character, and it was completely wrong. It looked like, you know, a school marm at a bar as opposed to like a bar wench. You know what I mean? Huge mm-hmm. difference, huge, massive difference. And, you know, so you learn and then you, you realize, okay, well, you know, I know what happened there. And next time I got to, you know, really put my foot down because I know who this character is. And you can never assume that the makeup artist does. Then you'll be on other shows like, the movie coming out um, in January retitled Doom Room. It was Nightmare Box. Then you have a group like that that are just, they have the makeup down better than you imagined to capture the character. So if, if each department is really rock solid, then, you know, that, then you're really lucky, first of all. And second of all, that's when the money doesn't really matter. But obviously you have to have money to even have all these departments. So, mm-hmm. so uh, you mentioned doom room. Uh, this is coming out in January. Uh, give us a quick idea what that's about. Yeah. Doom room is very intense. John keys directed that. Uh, we did American nightmare together. So the first time uh, we collaborated again. Um, well, besides um, suburban nightmare, which we co-wrote, but I wasn't in it. I had my, Fingers cut off two weeks before shooting started, so I had to be taken out of it. Couldn't do it. So this is the first time in 20 years that we worked together, and we shot it in London, and um, it's based on the true story of the woman who was captured by this couple and put in a box under their bed for seven years. Uh That true story? Uh Yeah, I remember this. Yeah. yeah, really horrible, but it's told from the perspective of the sort of mind of the girl. So it's it's real, but it's not exactly real because it's her like hallucinating and, you know, combining real with, you know, what's in her her really messed up head at this point. So it's it's super cool. I I can't wait for people to see that one too. Mm-hmm. Did you say you had your finger cut off? I had all four fingers on my right hand uh, severed off with a machete on a film 
shoot. Oh God, I didn't know that. That's crazy. Except for the except for the bones, but everything inside, like the tendons, the nerves, everything. It had uh, two operations, and you know, um, two three years recovery with rehab and stuff. And oh boy, it took me a long time to feel comfortable again being on a set, like really yeah. comfortable. Uh, because I just, prior to that, I just had like this ridiculous amount of just complete trust that people knew what they were doing and, you know, nobody yeah. would ever give you anything that wasn't a prop. <laughs> right? Yeah. right? Why would they do that? But <laughs> no. So again, lesson on me learned. Now you have to double check. You really have to double check everything. I mean, as an actor, it is your responsibility. I mean, I know there's unions for that, but even still accidents happen, mm-hmm. you know, there was a, the accidents happen and, and they're not even necessarily anybody's fault. There was a stunt man that passed away on the set of the walking dead. So, yeah. you know, and it's sad, but things happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No means in, in the amount of movies you've been in, but uh, recently I did a short movie and uh, I had to fire guns and like there was so, and they weren't even real guns, but there was so much like involved, like they had to check them and double check them and make sure no one's actually like in front of me and all these things, you know, before I fired them for the camera. Mm-hmm. So oh yeah, I, you have to. I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to apologize earlier for saying that you mostly do, uh, you know, over the top stuff. I know you did. No, offense, don't, you, don't apologize because but... <laughs> it's true that I, that I do a certain amount of that. And I just finished Lloyd Kaufman's um, probably last film. He was saying it's yeah. his last film, but, but Lloyd, you never know for sure, but we'll call it that for now. Shakespeare shitstorm, And it's absolutely so much fun. I mean, doing absurdist comedy is absolutely, you know, it's like you take off all the training wheels and the blinders you just let loose and you have to stay grounded but you know you just you really the the more fun you can have as the character you know but you have to be grounded because when you're you see performers are sort of like they're laying heavy on the comedy lines or they're winking at the camera it doesn't come off it doesn't work but if you you can really have a lot of fun. Like I look at, uh, you know, killer rack is really over the top craziness, but fun, you know, like that, that sort of thing. I do have a lot of, a lot of fun making those movies too, but yeah, horror, straight horror and comedy horror. Love them both. Love them both. Yeah. Why? Well, why well, was in my mind? Because I was I was just at Buffalo Dreams Fantastic Film Festival in Buffalo, and uh, one of your movies played there, Post Apocalyptic Commando Shark, and so I yes. had that in my mind. It's very over the top movie, and uh, the, the that was place was packed actually for the screening. So you know, and uh, everyone was laughing and having a good time. Uh, how did you get involved in Post Apocalyptic Commando Shark? <laughs> I assume even just hearing the name, you'd be like, okay. yeah, I think I'd like to do that. <laughs> well. Well, how can, okay, first question is, how can you not be involved with post-apocalyptic <laughs> Commander Shark? But second of all, uh, Sam, the director, I've known him for a lot of years, a lot of years. Like when um, Greg started putting on the film festival the first year, I was there as a guest. I think we had just made Slime City Massacre. And um, Sam came in as a brand new filmmaker, and he had one or two of his shorts screen there 
and he um, just he he just developed from there. I mean, he he got the you know best newcomer award, and and it's interesting because the shorts were very serious, and they were really powerful. So then to see him go from that, and then you know again, it's like. You know, you can't put someone in a peg because, you know, you can't like pigeonhole them because he's not just making serious movies. He's obviously making really outrageous, silly, fun movies. So he's he kind of does them both as well. But um, I, I've known him for a lot of years. He worked on Model Hunger. He I've been in probably like five or six movies with him. When as as an actor, when he you know he's acting as well in in films that I've made in Buffalo, so he just um, just happened to catch me right before I did Shakespeare Shitstorm, and he's like, hey, you know, come to Buffalo for like two days and we'll do this fun stuff, and I was like, oh yeah, because he sent me the sides, and I was like, well, this is hilarious, you know, <laughs> get me all get me all primed up, ready for Shakespeare shitstorm. <laughs> so uh, we did it. We had a blast, and, and he was a riot. He's always a riot. Yeah. Yeah, it was my first time there at that uh, film festival uh, that Greg puts on. And uh, what I noticed right away was is there, there's a great community there where everyone's like, uh, they, they see people, you know, come from uh, someone who just helped on a movie, then made the shorts, like you're saying, the same, and then now he's got his, uh, he has features, and it was very cool to see that everyone was supportive of everybody and, you know, other filmmakers yeah. stayed to watch other people's movies. And uh, it was just a really good time. I hope to go back next year. Yeah. It's really nice when that happens because, um, that doesn't always happen with a lot of film festivals. In other words, you know, you won't have the whole community show up for your movie. It's only the people that you've like begged to get in the theater, you know, and, mm -hmm. and the cast and like anybody else you could drag in off the street. But with with the good film festivals, they will they will stay. They they have committed those days that they're in town, and they will just they'll sit and they'll watch all the movies. They're there for film, and mm -hmm. so that's one of one of those film festivals. So yeah, they should be really proud. They have they have that that really good you know um, vibe about it. You know, people yeah. go in there for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got a little delirious watching uh, seven straight days of movies, but I had a good time. Yes, um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, by the time you walk out of there, you you know your brain's ready to explode. But <laughs> I mean, in a good way. It's yeah, just, yeah. You've seen so much, and it's impossible to even digest everything. You you have to. The first film you saw there felt like maybe three years ago you saw it. You know, by the time you're done. But, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but it's good, you know. For film lovers, it's it's awesome. It's an yeah. awesome experience. Definitely. So, can you talk more about Shakespeare Shitstorm? Uh, what's your what's your role in it? Okay, I play uh, Senator Sebastian, who is uh, one of the evil people that is very much into big pharma. Like I sort of, you know, sell. Uh, big pharma to other companies and we push it and I'm part of this group you know we've come up with this with this wonderful new drug for all of the like social justice warriors and all the people that are really extreme left I don't know about extreme right but all the extremes and because everything can offend everybody nowadays we yeah. came up with this pill called safe spatia 
And so it's a must have like to keep people on it so they can tolerate everything that's going on because they're triggered by every little thing. <laughs> so uh, that, that's just one part of it. And Lloyd plays dual roles, brother and sister, you know, sort of the, the, the evil sister who's like works with me. I'm like uh-huh. every scene I had, I'm ex- well, except for near the end, which I won't give away, but every scene I had was with Lloyd in drag. So, I mean, that was fun. But uh-huh. once we, once we're, we're on a ship and we sort of like, it's based on the Tempest, right? Shakespeare's mm-hmm. Tempest. So we crash into the shores of New Jersey and we're brought to this sort of club um, holding space. And when we get there, seeing we were, we crashed in the first place because of all of the uh, whale plumes. Basically we got, you know, shit stormed you know the the whales put so much shit on on the boat that it basically sunk it so that's where the shit storm comes from and um so we get to the the space the sort of club and um then we all get culturally appropriated so i am now as a mexican man and uh lloyd is uh, sort of a Disney ripoff princess uh-huh. and all the other characters. There, there's so many great characters. It's, it's hard to even name them all, but you know, things go awry and it's, it's just amazing. But the coolest thing about the whole thing is it's such a comment on where we're at now, mm-hmm. you know, like everything that's going on, uh, today, as far as like, you know, everything being has to be appropriate and everything is like too PC and, and everybody's so sensitive. So it sort of takes that to the, you know, hundredth power and yeah. kind of de- deals with that. Cause as you know, Lloyd's movies are all about social commentary oh, yeah. underneath the slapstick. Mm-hmm. So that's what this one basically deals with. Very good. Uh, I'm coming off a 30-day suspension on Facebook for a six-year-old picture where I had a T-shirt of a cartoon zombie Hitler, and someone was, like, bitching on it, and and it was, like, deemed, like, hate crime of some kind. And I was like, if anything, yeah, if anything was making fun of Hitler. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's insane. You know, it's, yeah, exactly. No, people are so way out of control. And the fact that, you know, I know these social media platforms, they will just take things down as opposed to actually analyzing them and telling some people, no, that's actually okay. It's just easier for them to take things down. But for them to take down your you know, put you on suspension for wearing a joke t-shirt about Hitler. Uh-huh. That's uh, absolutely, absolutely ridiculous. And that's, that's where we're at today. And that's exactly what this movie's about. Mm-hmm. Is that, interest- that sort of state of being. Yeah. It's interesting from the same company made that shirt. I also have a, it's like a, a Jesus one. So it's a zombie Jesus. No one complains about that. That one's totally fine. But uh, if you one about Hitler is you know that's off, that's off limits. You can't even make fun of Hitler. No, no, don't even bring Hitler up. Whatever <laughs> you do, and when you put a, a description underneath this uh, podcast, don't put Hitler. 
that there's Hitler <laughs> jokes in here. Or, right, you know, right, yeah. God only knows what, you know, you get some secret service people on your ass. But, uh, no, I, I don't really understand. It's in those moments where I kind of, you know, get nostalgic for the times when, not when people were being abused or bullied, that's sure, different, sure. but mean, when you could say things and people would damn well know you're joking. Mm-hmm. I mean, come on, come right. on. Right. But the pendulum you... <laughs> will swing back. It will. Uh-huh. So, uh, and, also and, your Hitler t- and your Hitler t-shirt will be popular once again. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's my like, prediction. Don't throw it away. Don't throw it away. Throw it. Yeah. Because yeah. if you were a real, if you were a real Nazi, you wouldn't show your support with a, a cartoon, uh, zombie Hitler with like a bullet wound in his head. No. That wouldn't be your way of like, like, yeah, hey, pro, you know, Hitler or whatever. No, and like think how sad it is the person who actually made the um, accusation against you, like mm-hmm. complained about it. Like yeah. what the hell are they doing with their life that they have to be so crazy about <laughs> this stuff? Like is it personal? Are they really just like scanning for things to feel the power of suspending you for 30 <laughs> days? I, I don't understand. Yeah. Yeah, I agree 100%. And they, they were there arguing with me on the picture, and, and I was being oh. sarcastic. And uh, But it was very odd because they took everything deadly serious, which I, I assumed it was very obvious that it was joking. But yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, uh, how about... A tear, a tear <laughs> comes to my eye like the Indian who was in the water looking at the garbage. Okay, everybody's <laughs> going to have to go and Google that commercial it's from the 70s. But that's how I feel about that, a tear coming down my eye like the Indian. <laughs> Google the commercial if you don't know yeah. what, what I'm talking about, people. It's worth it. Exactly. And uh, well, Can you tell me about Dick Johnson and the Tommy Gun versus the Cannibal Cop? Because that's another amazing name. Yes. This is a very, very funny movie. Um, it's about... Again, Sam is acting in, in the movie with John Renna, who also directs it. Um, and they're two kind of bumbling cops trying to, to crack this case. They were inspired by the real-life story about the cannibal cop in New York City. Um, and, that, and then that's as far as the actual based on true events goes. <laughs> <Right>. But um, <laughs> I don't necessarily want to give the ending away, but it's, uh, I, I work in the police station with Danny Hicks, who is, of course, in the Evil Dead uh, sequels mm. and stuff like that. And uh, it's, it's really, really funny. Here's another funny story unrelated to the movie. I got the disc, was sent to me, and it didn't play. So I must, thanks for reminding me, I'm going to make a note right now. Complain uh-huh. disc didn't work. <laughs> so I've, I have not seen that one either, even though I have the Blu-ray. It doesn't work on my player. So right. um, right. hopefully I'll be able to catch up with you on all of these things. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> very soon but that was that was a blast Ab- absolutely a blast and and funny enough again they usually tie in that was shot in buffalo and that we shot that the same time that killer rack was being shot so mm-hmm. basically on the days off the crew from one could go over and maybe even some of the actors go over and work on the other one because if you think about it if you've got these people in town 
and a couple people are wanting to make a movie, it's kind of like a, a genius idea sure. to utilize them as much as you, as you can. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, let's see here. Uh, something sent in here by, uh, John. He said, uh, that you changed the line in the script and that it made uh, Danny Hicks laugh. Oh, <laughs> and well, yeah, 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 yeah. I did. <laughs> I did. Well, okay. I was doing a Boston accent. Okay. So when I said, <laughs> and I can't remember what it was now, but it was something about like all the frogs on the lawn. Um, <laughs> Something about the frogs on the lawn. I just made it up because I just it just came to my mind and and doing this Boston accent, it was it just came out so bizarre and absurd that no matter how many times we did it, he could not stop laughing. I mean, er, every time he just cracked up until he had tears in his eyes. But um, I think we finally got it. I I think we beat the joke to death, meaning until he laughed and got it out of his system. And then, uh, and then we shot it, but I was like, okay, might be a good line if, if, uh, it's cracking Danny Hicks up this much. So uh-huh. hopefully I st- still had the punch by the time we got it out. Um, but, uh, oh yeah, he's a joy. He was a joy. What a, what a nice guy he is. I can't believe it. Incredibly uh, nice guy. It, John did send me the line when he told me to mention the story. He said, I was eating frogs off the front yard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm eating fro- right, frogs up the front yard. Yeah. I Believe me, I'm out of practice, but I hit every, you know, <laughs> vowel and consonant as Boston as I could. It was like, yeah, it was silly. <laughs> it probably sounds silly, but you had to be there, I guess. But it was very, very funny. It was yeah. funny. I'll- I'm from Massachusetts, so I, I like the idea. Okay. Right. So, you, you know, if someone was overdoing it, you could kind of imagine oh, yeah. that it would be pretty funny. Yeah. Right. Which, it's like in every movie set in Boston, everyone talks like that. They always go. They really yeah. Go to, but he, he also said that he actually he actually used the one take where uh, Danny laughs. Uh, that's oh, he does? He I did? Know. Yeah, I guess oh. so. Oh. <laughs> oh, that's good. Thank God. I think it, the line was still fresh at that point. So that's that's lucky for me. Yeah, yeah I can't wait to see it. I really can't. Yeah, I want to check it out too. Good it memories. Really so uh, <laughs> you mentioned Model Hunger before, which I, I was a big fan of. Uh, do you have any plans to uh, direct the movie in? Yes, Torment Road. Torment Road is going to be made in 2019, like the spring. I don't have exact dates yet, but we have a script and we did a fundraiser and I'm really hoping to raise some extra money outside of the fundraiser as well. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a really, really good movie. It's very, obviously very different from Well Hunger. Also written by James Mogart though. Um, and I, I went to him and I said, really want to do like a road movie, horror elements to it, but just like a really fucked up horror movie. That's just, that's all that really follows the, the theme of, of what a road movie is. Someone searching for something, they're not in their elements, 
They are, you know, they just come upon from one bad situation going into the next, which is worse upon worse upon worse. And, you know, and he just like went with it. So, yeah, we have an incredible script and we'll be doing it 2019. Very excited. Very cool. I'm looking forward to that. Do you think uh, uh, doing your second feature, you're directing your second feature, like uh, you learn stuff off the first one? Like, not only what to do, but I guess not what to not what no what not to do. Oh sure, but yeah, it's like every movie has its own, um, it's its own child in every way, and this one is going to be um, a lot smaller budget, but doesn't mean you know less of a movie. It could turn out very well, being more. Um, it because it's not. It's very, I don't want to say it's, it's not as ambitious because it is, because it, the, with the script and everything, but it's kind of designed so it could be over the course of a couple of months, it could be shot just because of the nature of shooting it in sequence and what's going on with the character. It won't have the pressure of a lot of people being brought in from out of town in this very short you know, 20 day span where no matter what, everything has to get done. And so, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff that I learned on model hunger. There's no doubt, but, Mm -hmm. um, going, going forward with torment road, that's, you know, it's such a different animal that, um, I think even though it doesn't have the same amount of money, it's, I I really think it's going to be better just better because of the nature of um, the subject matter and how it's going to be shot. And that's what I think. That's, that's mm-hmm. my goal. Uh, what make, else if you make, mo- make movies that I, I would like to see. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Uh, and my a few it's... questions from uh, Facebook and Twitter. Cause a lot of people sent some. Yes. In. All right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, this is not really a question, but Dean Dole says, if they ever make another live-action Adams Family movie, Debbie must be Morticia. He says, not a question. <laughs> and you know what? I agree. <laughs> I fully agree. Let's do it. All right. Uh, John Wood, this is an interesting question. What's the best gift you ever received from a fan? <laughs> well, besides all of his illustrations, because right. he's an extremely talented artist, um... I would have to say, huh, well, but, well, I get, you know, it really has to be the artwork, you know, because I've had various different forms of like paintings and, you know, the, the illustrations, of course, and uh, sort of like little models of characters. So I would have to be um, specific enough to say artwork, but general enough to say, you know, kind of all of it, because I've had everything from acry- acrylic sort of paintings to, you know, sketches and, you know, like one of the coolest things, and this is not from a fan, obviously, but one of the coolest things that I've done is uh, I have like a beautiful painting that uh, Dave Stevens did of me. It's on the cover of one of his sketchbooks, but it's just like amazing, like Art is like, it's, I don't know, it's the coolest thing, really. So I would have to say that. Yeah, very cool. Uh, Robert Ropars, if you could star in the remake of any classic legendary horror film, what would it be and why? Yeah, that's a good question. 
Robert, um, huh? You know, that's a tough one because I've been thinking about that. But I, you know, I still have to go back um, to my favorites and the one seeing it's never going to happen. I don't have to worry about offending anybody talking about remakes. But mm-hmm. if I was able to, in my own imagination and in my own mind, I would go back to the thing. I would love to be, you know, Kurt Russell in this thing. And not, not to be him, but to play that right. part. The, the character. Um, just, just uh, some really my favorite movies. Really, they have male characters because my favorite movies are, are from the 70s. And so there's very few female roles that were written during that particular time that stand out for me. Maybe Alien, there's movies like that that you could point to. But mm-hmm. they'd have to be um, a role that was written, uh, you know, into it being a female. So okay, that would definitely be one. I mean, you know, love to be in the Warriors. I don't know what I would play in there. There's so many great characters. Um, I would love to be the taxi driver i would love to be (laughs) the road warrior i mean yeah and not just because they're the leads but i love the anti-hero character and so often they don't and this is kind of the why to his question because they don't really write a lot of characters for women that are anti-heroes i mean they'll write final girls They'll write some really kick-ass action roles for women, but the anti-hero, like the angst character that sort of goes through the movie and there's some resolution with the story, but not necessarily complete resolution for the character. They're kind of like maybe even worse off sometimes. (laughs) And that sort of anti-hero character, that's what I would love to do. Mm-hmm. I think you'd make a great Travis Bickle when you bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> hey, me too. But yeah. you know, well, for for our fantasies in our minds, we'll, we'll uh, ha- probably have to keep it there. But yeah, that would be fucking great. Yes, it would. Uh, Justin, where do you believe in ghosts? Oh yeah, I do because I've experienced them. I've experienced them. Um, I was on uh, a ghost hunting. It was basically a documentary. It was with Jim O'Rear. And uh, we were in this place in um, Tennessee. And it was a hospital that had been shut down. But we were there for the night. And I heard disembodied voices. And specifically, some older ladies going like, like they were down the hall and that's kind of the old school way that some of the Southern ladies would call for their nurses. Mm -hmm. And so between that and some experiences I've had when I was younger, I tell you right now, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that they not only exist, but they're good and there are bad. And they both exist. And, um, yeah, the the occasional disembodied voice is, is cool, but you don't want to go down the rabbit hole and, and uh, you know, meet too many of the demonic demonic ones. They can, they can stay away. Right, the right. happy ones that want to help clean and do the dishes, they're welcome over. <laughs> All right. So if there's any ghosts out there listening, you heard that. 
Yeah, that like right. cleaning, you know, <laughs> as opposed to uh-huh. throwing things down and smashing them, kind of doing right. the opposite, you know. So yeah. say one yeah. that then, yeah. Yeah, you never hear about those ones. I guess people don't you want never. people to know because they, they want to keep them to themselves. <laughs> now, that would be a great show, you know what I mean? Like right. if the Ghost Adventures guys, if they went to, you know, some haunting and instead of things crashing, it was, you know, the sort of the yeah. poltergeist action was the opposite, you know? Things yeah. would be like tidied up, turnarounds mm-hmm. and all the dishes are done as opposed yeah. to, you know, the chairs on the table or something. That would right. be cool. Yeah, and then, like, the people who would come to get rid of poltergeist and stuff, they'd be, like, the enemy, because they'd want to keep those people away. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, 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 you'd lock the doors for them. No need, right. no need. Very young. <laughs> right. uh, let's see. We're going to say a couple more here quick, because uh, i got a lot of them. But uh, Thomas Seymour wants to know, what is your personal biggest victory in your career? Oh, what a good question. What a good question. There's so many ways to answer that. I'll tell you what. Uh, the first movie, movie I did with Gunnar Hansen at that particular time in my life, um, I, that was a massive victory because we had been friends for a few years even prior to that. And when we did Hellblock 13, it was so much fun and such a joy meeting him, working with him, and hanging out with him. That was, that was just a personal you know, uh, highlight for me. Um, American Nightmare was really good because it did exactly what we were talking about earlier in the conversation. It took someone who was only being given a certain type of role, a very different role, and people were able to see me differently, therefore cast me differently into like serious, crazy, but serious roles. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that was, and the making of it. And there was a ghost story in, in that one too, the the place I was staying in, there was sort of one of those end tables that was between two sort of bunk beds. They, they weren't bunks, but they were sort of like the cots, if you will, in the room that I was staying in. And it was like every night the thing would sort of like jump around a bit and slide. And, and I said to John, is this, is there, is this place haunted or anything? Cause that's, you know, I'm not hearing any trains or anything going by to, to shake this stuff. And he's like, no, no, it's haunted. <laughs> so <laughs> there was a, there you go. Another experience. There. Mm-hmm. And uh, that wasn't a bad one. It didn't, uh, didn't do anything. I just was like, Oh, okay. It's the, the ghost thing again. Um, and yeah, I mean, just uh, boy, I could go down the list for, all different reasons. I mean, making color from the dark, um, getting to, to work on material of great writers, like color from the dark based on HP Lovecraft's short story with Yvonne Zucone, um, getting to do telltale, telltale heart, the Edgar Allan Poe piece, mm-hmm. getting to do the movie with Thomas, uh, Rudyard Kipling's, um, Mark of the Beast. I mean, we did that movie together. So there's, and something really, really cool about working on something that was based on some classic literature. And of course we have Tromeo and Juliet and Shakespeare Shitstorm based <laughs> on Shakespeare's plays. So mm-hmm. there's more of that. Um, but, you know, there, oh yeah, there, it's funny, you know, and then in radio, I, you know, Fangoria radio was, mm-hmm. you know, time of my life. I, I, love that we had a fantastic time that was that was stellar i mean 
you know, uh, I had um, people on from Dexter as my co-host when Dee Snyder was traveling. And, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, you can't, yeah, you can't beat it for memories. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, G. Frank Lott. Uh, he has a few questions. I'll pick one. I know you've had, uh, I know you've never had an easy life. Is there any one resource you turn to, to get through the rough times? Yeah. Like, you know, it's funny, but you can really, you know, continuously fall down the rabbit hole, different points in your life. Like once you get out of the rabbit hole, uh, doesn't mean that you're out of it for good. It's kind of like you've constantly got to be on top of things things never really are easy. I mean, I'm not saying that they are for anybody, but certainly they, they never become easy. I think it's just, you have to figure out how to, um, battle your demons. And sometimes they win for a while. If you haven't kept them in check and you've taken it for granted, sometimes they'll, they'll sort of slide back in and they'll start kind of winning and then you've got to beat them back with a lot of hard work which includes just working on whatever it is whatever art that you're working on now I'm a firm believer that art is is good for the soul it's good for the mind um, and to not be overly concerned about what anybody thinks. I mean, you could take really good criticism and learn from it. If it's, if it's well done, not, you know, you suck, it sucks. No, no, no. You have to be able to let all of that stuff go, especially nowadays. I mean, that, that stuff, it's so meaningless because it's, it's completely not thought out. You can take criticism, but at the end of the day, you have to believe in whatever it is you're doing more than, than anything else. And that kind of sees you through like your stubbornness, your strong will and your, your sort of like, you know, blinders. And you Mm -hmm. just, you just keep, keep putting in everything that you've got, no matter what that is. Some days it can only be 5% of what you're capable of if you're having a really bad day. But if you do, anything towards something that you're working on, you will, you will find yourself winning. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a, a great message to end the show with. It's been a great time. To, okay. It's been a great time talking to you. <laughs> well, thank you for having me on again. That's yeah, awesome. It's, it's the third time. So we'll, we'll do it third again. Third time's a charm. Exactly. We're going to do it again. Yeah. <laughs> there's believe me there's stuff coming out and we'll talk about torment road and we'll talk about you know all the great other stuff that's uh that's coming out and uh but you hit on all the the current releases so thank you for doing that yeah thank you for coming and uh i'm sure people can just put in debbie rashawn and they'll find you but do you, do you want to plug any of your uh social media sites or anything well if they just go to debbierashawn.com and then it connects everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because then you could just go to whichever one that you're on or you're interested in or whatever from there as opposed to rattling them all off. Who's going to remember anyway? So right. just go to <laughs> debbyrashawn.com and they're all, all the links are just right there. Exactly. Very good. Well, thank you again. It's been a great time. Well, thank you very much, and you have a great night. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Have a good night. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.
Bye. From ancient terrors to the search for modern day conspiracies, the tomb of Nick Cage is the new sound in horror rock. Uncover the mystery of old world horror for the new world order on iTunes, Amazon, and more. Ripley, we should have listened. The Tomb of Nick Cage. They're coming night! Mostly! They're coming night! Mostly! They're coming night! Mostly! They're coming night! Mostly! Find out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Tomb of Nick Cage. They're coming night! Hi, this is Don Coscarelli, director of Phantasm, the Beastmaster, Bubba Hotep. You're listening to Without Your Head. Welcome to the station of decapitation without your head. I'm Nasty Neal, and I'm joined by Stuart Stone, co-writer and director of Scarecrows on demand December 11th. It's very cool to have you here. Thank you for having me, man. Yeah. So for people who don't know, can you give them an idea what Scarecrows is about? Uh, well, Scarecrows is a film. It's a movie that's coming out, as you alluded to, December 11th. It uh-huh. is a uh, throwback sort of horror film with uh, with an emphasis more on fun than anything else. Uh, there's, uh, you know, it's the story of these uh, unsuspecting uh, teens that are looking for uh, an afternoon of fun and end up uh, trespassing on this farmer's field that uh unfortunately if you trespass on his field he kills or he uh captures tra- trespassers and turns them into scarecrows leaving them up in the field to die so i guess it's uh you know it's not such a great day for the kids but uh it's a great day for the farmer who uh, <laughs> uh keeps, is very busy for the yes, sir, 85 minutes of the film yeah, you said emphasis on fun, but I do have to say it gets pretty dark. It's not, uh, you know, a, t- a totally fun movie throughout the the film. Yeah, definitely, it it does get dark. Um, but I think that by design, it's sort of laid out in a way that kind of makes you forget that you put that type of movie on, so that maybe it'll hit a little harder. Um, I agree. It doesn't turn into you do... what it does. Yeah, because you do spend a lot of time with the uh, with the four uh, main cast members, you know, and you uh, you have fun with them and you get to know them. So, which is always better anyway, because then when something does happen to somebody, it means more if if you if you spend time with them and are emotionally attached to them. Yeah, I think that you do definitely get a chance to kind of get to know the characters, and and I think that's I appreciate you saying that, but I I think it is important. I mean, you know, if you don't care about the people at all, then you're not going to care. They start getting killed, you know? Right. So, uh, you know, I think developing sort of the relationships and seeing like who these kids are and, and you're kind of like rooting for them to live or die, I guess, depending on how you view it. But, uh, yeah, we definitely spend, spend, spend a good amount of time with, uh, with these kids before we start having them get, you know, tortured and strung up. But, uh, it was a lot of fun to make. I guess that's why I use the word fun because, you know, we were having a lot of fun making the film and in between mm-hmm. takes always smiles and laughs. And it wasn't a very, um, you know, it wasn't a very, uh, evil film to work on, put it that way. 
right. So uh, you co-wrote it with Adam Rodness. Uh, how long have you guys worked together? And was was this the first thing you guys wrote together? Uh, actually, no. Adam and I have been uh, working together for a long time. Um, this is our second horror movie. Uh, the first one was called The Haunted House on Kirby Road, which uh, focused on a bunch of like stoners kind of thinking it's a good idea to go to an alleged haunted house and smoke a bunch of weed and see what happens to them. Uh, it didn't work out for them, uh, spoiler. <laughs> but, uh-huh. uh, you know, we when we did that movie, we realized, you know, from the writing standpoint that, you know, doing a movie in a haunted house is sort of dealing with, like, supernatural, you know, killings and spirits, and you don't really have, you know, a bad guy, so to speak, and that's something that we really wanted to do. With Scarecrows, um, we wanted to create a supervillain, you know, that, you know, might last more than one movie, and uh, that's that's sort of like how we started uh, figuring out Scarecrows. You know, we we grew up watching the classic slasher films of the uh, of the uh, golden age of slasher films in the eighties and nineties. You know, mm-hmm. with Freddy and Mike Myers and Jason and you know. Hellraiser, Puppet Master, you know, all of them had these great villains. And uh, we just wanted to, you know, take a crack at creating one one of our own. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so that, that kind of explains Scarecrows. But, yeah, we, we've got more on the horizon. And uh, our production company, 5-7 Films, has a really busy 2019 ahead of us as well. So things are, things are real good. Cool. So um, we'll get to the future ones here in a second, but... Uh, for when you're casting your uh, your villain, uh, what was it? What was right about uh, the 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 actor you chose? What about him, like uh, made him be the right guy for Scarecrows? Uh, Jason J. Thomas is a massive man. Uh, he's you know well over six feet. He's probably around six three or something, and he just uh, he kind of reminded me of the wrestler Kane. <laughs> I thought the same thing when watching it, actually. And so I'm a big wrestling fan, and uh-huh. you know, as soon as, as, as Kane walks through the door, mm-hmm. I was like, "We got to have this guy." Um, <laughs> you know, maybe somebody turning the channels will think it's Kane and keep the movie on. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, um, but no, I think like he he kind of had that look. You know, he looks like a movie monster already. So, you know, we threw a cup, you know, putting him in the outfit and giving him some weaponry. Uh, it was, it was, it was quite good. There was a, a couple other guys that came in for the part that sort of played it a little bit like the, it would have played a little bit older. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, it worked really well with Jason because it's sort of believable that, you know, he really could survive just about anything that like these kids are throwing at him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a combination of things, but, you know, he was definitely the right guy, the right look, and he walked in, and as soon as he walked in, it was like, yeah, that's our guy. Yeah, yeah, definitely, I I thought the same. He looks like the unmasked uh, cane. Yeah. Uh, you know, the clean-shaven cane. I also thought, uh, don't take this the wrong way, because it's not the greatest wrestler of all time, but I thought when you first saw him with the hat and everything, I thought he looked like Outback Jack a little bit. Yeah, a little uh, Outback Jack there, too, yeah. yeah. Um you know, it was funny. We wanted to have like a farmer's kind of, we wanted to have like a hat that would sort of cover his face so that, mm-hmm. you know, when eventually you do see his face, it's a bit of a more of like, oh, okay. 
yeah. um, aha moment. And the hat that they ended up with definitely had an Outback Jack Crocodile Dundee type of vibe. <laughs> uh, in hindsight, I mean, that wasn't necessarily by design. That's true. But, you know, yeah. we also, um, you know, you watch a movie like Wolf Creek, you know, there's, mm-hmm. there's, there's some creepy reasons to, you know, want to have a guy with a hat like that, maybe. Oh, yeah. Um, but, yeah, that, that's really funny, the Outback Jack. So, you know you're wrestling. I like it. <laughs> yes, I've actually interviewed Outback Jack uh, many years ago. Very excited. Yeah, nice guy. So. Yeah, he's very cool. He's very cool. But uh, I love the hat does work because, like you said, it does cover enough of the face, but then also leaves a little bit of the face there. So, you know, it's like, uh, you know, you know, there's like a person under there. So, it leaves right. a mystery there. I like it. So I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, scarecrows themselves are creepy anyway. So I think it, uh, you really intend, uh, bring up the creep factor with people. And I mean, it's not a spoiler. You already mentioned it and you see it right at the beginning, but someone inside a, you know, a scarecrow hung out in the, uh, in the, in the field is very creepy. Well, I mean, if you think about it in real life, God forbid this should ever happen, but if that ever did happen, like how would anybody know you were out there? Right. You're, you're in the middle of nowhere. So it's sort of like, you know, those water movies like Jaws and stuff, when you're, like, in the middle of the big ocean, like, who's going to hear you scream? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very similar in, like, the middle of a massive, you know, a couple hundred-acre cornfields in the middle of nowhere. You know, no one's going to hear you, and especially at, like, nighttime, you're not getting out of there. Like, you're it's, if you're dropped in the middle, it's almost impossible to, get, to find your way out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think, like, those kind of... Um, ideas sort of played into the whole thing too. I mean, the real idea spawned, ironically, my um, Adam had was on a trip with his wife, and they were driving to from L.A. I believe to San Francisco, and on their way up the Northern California coast, they stumbled upon this scarecrow festival in this town, a small town, and it was like scarecrows everywhere, like on the main street, like posed in different, like there's like a baseball player, a doctor, a firefighter, like all different scarecrows and it creeped the hell out of them. And it was like, well, what if there was real people that were inside of there? And that's, that actually was the catalyst to sort of get to get this whole idea sort of going. And we went to, um, we went to the drawing board with that and, and, and it sort of just came to life. That's pretty um, cool. But scarecrows are, are scary. You know, they mm-hmm. are They're creepy. And uh, I was I remember, also very watching, I remember watching Children of, a Cor- uh, Children of the Corn mm-hmm. as a kid, and it's scaring the hell out of me. Um, you know, and that was just, it's not so much about scarecrows, but just like the whole vibe of the cornfield and the weaponry and the, you know, all of that stuff was just real creepy, right? Yeah, definitely. I was going to bring up this. Uh, the use of a scythe was very cool. And, and if you do make a sequel, I, I suggest more scythe because. It's an underused weapon, and it's a very cool image. It is very creepy, too. I mean, uh, if there is a sequel, I promise you there will be a lot more of that, uh, just for you, my friend. All right, thank you. And I just took pictures because I was I just wanted to bring up the crows themselves are creepy, and while I was thinking that, uh, not a crow, but a red robin just uh, landed on the, the tree outside my window here. But the red yeah. robin's not nearly as creepy as the crow. No, no. 
And uh, the, I, like I like the crows are just they're just kind of hanging out, uh, waiting to peck away at people. It's funny because the crow, like, it's not that easy to get like a trained crow. You know, right. it's not like uh, it's not that it's not like you can just like phone up, and there's like a bunch of different listings for like crow trainers. Yeah, a crow. There was this one. There was this one guy like locally that had a crow, and we uh, we hired him to bring his crow to set. And on the day that the, you know, the crow was supposed to come and we're supposed to shoot all the stuff with the crow, we get a call that the crow's not coming because the crow died. It was like attacked by like another animal in this guy's like animal sanctuary and the crow is dead. So we had no crow that day and we, you know, scrambled and had to get inventive. And um, luckily there was a second crow. (laughs) <laughs> it wasn't like as trained as the crow that we were supposed to get. So you're literally in order to get the crow to do anything, you're sitting. It's a lot of sitting and waiting, uh, uh-huh. you know, rolling camera and just hoping that something's going to happen, but they are meat eaters. And I saw that firsthand because, you know, we would put pieces of meat like near the head and hopefully the crow would like go over there and start pecking away. And sure enough, they eat raw meat. It's uh, mm-hmm. unno- a little known fact that crows are meat eaters. So that's sort of, uh, that's frightening too, because if a rotting human corpse was actually in a cornfield, mm-hmm. crows would probably actually eat them. Mm-hmm. That's for you. Yeah. I was just wondering if that, if the crow understudy was the one who killed the, the first crow. So we, so we could get the, the role, you know, there could have been like a Hitchcock kind of thing going on there for sure. <laughs> Uh-huh. I understand there was some jealousy between the crows, but uh, that's all over and done with now. <laughs> yeah, and I, I like that he 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 had a credit in the movie too, or she. I'm not sure. Yeah, Poe. Poe. Perfect. Yeah, Poe. Yeah. Poe is the uh, is the scarecrow or the crow that that ended up making it into the film, and the and the crow that died, um, you know, pours them out for him. Yeah, rest in peace. So where did you film it? Where where do you find like a big uh, a cornfield? Is this like a farmer let use their cornfield? Yeah, it was it was pretty much a, like completely like the film god shining on us. We were trying to figure out, you know, we were going reaching out to, you know, bigger sort of um, industrious sort of farms, and everybody wanted big money mm-hmm. to uh, shoot in their farm. And of course, when you're doing like an indie horror film, you don't have the luxury of having huge money to like be throwing around at anything, let alone, um, a location. Um, we got really lucky. We were driving back from a dejected meeting with a major, you know, player in the farming world out here. And, uh, we just saw this farm and Adam made like a right hand turn onto the guy's property. And I was like, what are you doing? He's like, (laughs) we're going to get this farm. And I'm like, you can't just drive onto somebody's property. (laughs) He's like, like, that's how people get shot. And he's uh-huh. like, no, no, we'll be fine. We literally pull up this, like, long dirt road to get to this guy's um, sort of farmhouse. And there's, like, this old man, like, in overalls, just sort of, like, sitting under a tree. And we pull up straight out of the movies, you know? <laughs> that's what I was thinking. And, uh, you know, we ended up making a, a deal with the guy right there on the spot. You know, he was really turned out to be great. He loved the idea of us being there and filming and he had some stuff that he was trying to get repaired in his farmhouse. The timing was perfect. 
we we made some repairs for him on his farmhouse, <laughs> and in turn he uh, let us use his cornfield. He even got out on his tractor and like cut um, like sort of a maze for us, so so we could like run around in there and shoot in there. Um, the guy was so cool, Farmer John. Oh, that's pretty awesome. And, uh, yeah. yeah, we ended up out there on his farm for the good part a good part of three weeks. Yeah. Uh, shooting nights and running around during the day it was pretty awesome. Do you know if he saw the finished movie? I don't know if he's alive. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I'd like him to see the movie. We've reached out to him, and he doesn't have uh, right. He's he not like, like an internet or anything like that. So yeah. I don't know. He was like a pretty older guy when we were with him. I hope he's alive. Uh, yeah. He is. Uh, you know, shout out to you, Farmer John. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. I don't know if he's seen it. I doubt it. Um, but I'd like him to. Yeah. So, but Poe doesn't have a, a second victim there. <clears throat> Did you... <laughs> how about the house itself? Is that his house? Well, his farm? No. The, the exterior was his, but the interior uh, was not. Uh, that was another farm. There's a TV show that they filmed in Toronto, outside of Toronto, called Shit's Creek. I don't know yeah, if you're familiar sure. with it. yeah. Got like Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara. It's a pretty funny show. Mm-hmm. But uh, they film out on this sort of farm, and we were able to uh, utilize that set for the kill room. It was actually like this old barn that was used by like um, this kid that was, he like takes bicycles and restores old school classic bicycles. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of his showroom, was in that room. And in exchange for letting us use the room, um, the parents were like, well, you, can you put him in the movie? And we were like, sure. So like that first victim that you kind of see running around, mm-hmm. uh, early in the movie, that's the kid who's, <laughs> whose farmhouse it was that we ended up making into our kill room. Uh-huh. Um, he, he had to empty out all of his bicycles and, uh, he let us in there to, to sort of make a, a the farmer's sort of scarecrow workshop room. Mm-hmm. That's very uh, yeah, cool. I mean, listen, you're, you're, when you're making these types of films, you have to be resourceful in every possible way. Mm-hmm. Get anything done. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really filmmaking at its truest art, you know, at, at its truest in its truest sense. You don't have money to throw at problems. You have to get creative with everything. Mm-hmm. And um, this was one of those movies that has like a funny story around sort of every 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 turn. There's mm-hmm. some kind of funny thing that had to happen in order to make something happen. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And is that is that fun when you're uh, when you have to be creative uh, to get things done? I mean, eventually you want to work to a place where you don't have to have this type of fun. <laughs> right. But, uh, you know where we're at in the in our in our um, company and where we're at as far as cranking out films. This is a great place for us to be and. You know, we're we're definitely getting it done, so to speak. And when, you know, the budgets and the stakes get higher, we'll be ready for it. And it'll be because of experiences like, you know, what we've been going through. But, you know, when you're working on these indie films in general, the crew that you're working with are just passionate people that aren't just punching a clock and making, you know, union money. These are people that are that want to break in and want to do work and are excited to be there. And the cast was very much the same, and it, and it makes like an environment that you know is it's it's pretty inspiring. That you know once the you know the movie looks great in my opinion. It, you know it looks it looks great, 
And oh, def- because it's of definitely all shot people, well, yeah. It's because of all the people that, that you know, it's not just me, it's everybody. Um, the, the people who, the art department was, was awesome. The wardrobe girl who created the scarecrow masks and everything, like she did such a good job. Um, you know, everybody, everybody has to like kind of pull their weight. You don't really have room for any, you know, any slackers. And uh, mm-hmm. we, got, we got really lucky from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and not sure to be told. Says, I'm sure. I'm sure everybody says that about their movie, but you know, I, I mean it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not to be told. Perv. There's also very nice Daisy Dukes in the movie. Yeah, that, that worked out really well too. Um, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I don't think she realized exactly how those shorts looked. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh huh. Until maybe a few days in, and at that point, we had already been shooting. Uh. <laughs> but uh yeah i mean listen these types of movies you know this is sort of a throwback to an era where it was probably way worse than what i did right, right. Um, but i think you know having some eye candy that, that, that definitely doesn't hurt the film it, it makes it you know a better viewing experience for a good large segment of the uh audience for sure yeah definitely so uh for people who don't know uh you have a long history as an actor. So when did you decide to become a filmmaker? I mean, I think like naturally growing up as a child actor and, you know, you're, you basically grow up on set. It's sort of a natural sort of evolution in general for most people to want to like, you know, figure out what else is out there to get you excited about. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I first got, um, a taste for the other side of the camera about 10 years ago when I was doing an MTV show with Jamie Kennedy, it was called blowing up where we were, it was sort of like curb your enthusiasm with white rappers. And, uh, I got a chance to be like sort of, uh, on the other side of the camera and I, I found it so fulfilling. And from there I got to go work with, for uh, Chris Angel, the magician in Las Vegas as a producer for his TV show. And, I just was loving that side of the camera so much. Like there was so much more to do than just showing up on set, reading your lines and going home. There's like, you're completely immersed in the project in a way that, you know, I'd never experienced before. And I loved it. Uh, when I had the opportunity to direct, um, you know, I did a couple of music videos and stuff like that beforehand, but when I had a chance to sort of step in the director's chair and direct uh, the haunted house on Kirby road film, um, I had such a good time that I was like, you know, you get the bug and it's like, fuck, man, I want to do this again and again and again and again. This is like, this is what I want to do. It's just, you know, the rejuvenation, so to speak, of the excitement and passion was, that was it. That was all I needed to see. Um, I think the complaint that I got from the Kirby Road film was that it was too funny and not scary enough for, like I said, hardcore horror fans. So... You know, when I got another opportunity to direct a horror movie, which turns out to be Scarecrows, um, you know, I still wanted to keep the tone in my, you know, who I am, which, you know, t- I come from like a comedy sort of more funny place than, a, than a, a sinister place. But I definitely feel like we try to make it more scary and more, you know, try to make it more um, appealing to the hardcore horror fans for Scarecrows. And I think... You know, as we keep going and making more films, it'll just keep getting better and better. But um, definitely huge 
leaps and bounds from one film to the other, and I think it will only just continue um, in that direction. Um, if you end up getting a chance to watch the Kirby Road film, you'll notice, uh, you know, that the, the two films sort of take place in the same universe. And there's even callbacks to the prior previous movie in Scarecrows and stuff. So that's something else that, you know, we knew that, you know, we're making these indie movies, you know, maybe someday people will go back and look for these types of films to see what we were doing and, they'll be like, whoa, look what they were doing. This is actually, all these movies all connect. This is so yeah. crazy. That's so, pretty cool. I don't know if it'll ever get to that point, but, you know, it's good. You never know. <laughs> so it's always sure. good to, to, to dream big. Definitely. So why horror? So, are, were you always interested in horror movies? Um, I It's a little bit of that. Of course, you know, everybody who's, Roughly, it, it seems like due to your Outback Jack reference, we're probably roughly <laughs> the same age. Um, uh-huh. You know, we grew up in that era when horror movies were, that's what you went to the video store. You either got wrestling tapes or you got horror movies. Um, you know, that, that, that to have an opportunity to jump in was really cool. I wouldn't say that it's my uh, specialty by any means, but when you're making a movie as a filmmaker you know, horror movies as a genre, you don't need star name actors to be in a horror movie for people to Mm -hmm. come and see it. It's the only genre that exists that's like that. Mm -hmm. You know, people go see horror movies because it's a horror movie, not because of who's in it, which allows you to make horror movies for, you know, lower independent style budgets and and get a lot of bang for your buck. Um, And it's a good way to discover new talent as well. I think that the kids that were in our movie were were great, you know, and I think they're going to have good long careers ahead of them. Um, This is, it's great that they were able to get their start with me in, in, in scarecrows. Um, You know, it's just that type of genre that you can still go out there and, and make a film and you don't need, you know, the rock to be in your movie in order for it to come out. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, you know, that, that, it's a combination of a lot of things of why horror. But I also think like if I was going to cut my teeth as a director for a couple of movies, this was a fun place to do it too. Um, you know, with horror, there are no rules. You can mm-hmm. sort of do whatever you want. And, you know, that's exciting as a storyteller to not have limitations on where you can go with your story. And that doesn't matter if it makes sense or doesn't make sense. Like, all bets are off when it comes to horror. You know, you can pretty much make your own rules. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's fun. Um, I think that's, there's a combination of a lot of things. But mainly, yes, I do love the genre, and I grew up loving it, so it was cool to be able to, like, give a nod and homage to the, those films that I grew up watching. But B, you know, getting experience and trying to uh, launch a career in a company, um, horror movies were are a great choice because you can make them cheaper and you can sell them easy and the horror translates into any language and people love to go get scared and you know our movies probably make you laugh and then make you scream a little bit so you know we, we offer something a little bit different than other people are offering in this space so mm-hmm. it's, uh you know also i think the success of films like get out and halloween obviously mm-hmm. you know horror is mm-hmm. And Blumhouse is becoming this huge powerhouse in Hollywood. They have become, I should say. Mm-hmm. It's exciting. It's a great time to be in the genre and in the space. And people are, you know, are looking for for horror 
in ways that they maybe haven't in years past. So, you know, it's a perfect storm right now to be making these types of films, and I'm lucky that I'm one of the few that gets to do it. Yeah. I also saw you're uh, one of the composers on the movie, so uh, did you do the score, and did you have any yep. input on the in the final song in the uh, in the in the credits? Yes, um, you know, John Carpenter. You know, he scores his movies mm-hmm. um, probably for the same reason as that I did mine because it's cheaper to do it that way. <laughs> but uh, I do have a um, a love for music. Obviously, um, I. I am a musician as well, and uh, you know, at one point I had like a record deal and was doing the whole music thing, and I think that, you know, being able to do the music, it's part of the, it's part of the storytelling that I feel like you know the music sets the tone for the, especially in horror, the music sets the tone for the for the whole film, so, you know, being hands on with the music is really an important thing for me plus i i love it and enjoy that process so much um but yeah i definitely scored the movie with uh jamie rise ironically you know when jamie and i had our uh kennedy and i were doing our rap thing we had this song called circle circle dot dot that was uh written and produced by myself and jamie rise and when i'm doing these horror movies all these years later it's the same guy jamie rise that did those silly rap songs with me that's uh you know that's doing these horror uh, movies with me, so it's really cool to still be able to like work with your best friends and 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 everybody sort of rooting for each other. Yeah. Um, the the music itself, the closing credit song, is a very talented friend of mine named John Newman, Johnny Newman, who um, in all of the films that I've done music for, I've used his music. Uh, he is just like this. He's got this album called The Gold Coast. That's just an incredible record that most people just don't know about. And lucky for me, they don't because it's allowed me to sort of utilize his uh, catalog of songs in everything I've done. I've always used his music. I love him and I love his music. And Mm -hmm. anything I can do to get his music out there, I'll do. And he happened to have a song called Scarecrow. um, And in the lyrics to Scarecrow is alive. That had nothing to do with our movie. That was a coincidence. And uh, it was just like, holy shit, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it worked out. Yeah, I assumed it was written for the movie. That's very, uh, that is a very cool coincidence. Uh, you know, we could stick with that version. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we got lucky. A lot of it's luck. It's like getting that song is the same as getting the cornfield is the same as getting the kill room is the same as having like the guy that looks like Kane walk through the door. It's like a series <laughs> of lucky events that have to come together in order for the finished product to, to be what it is. And, you know, there's no exception, not even the music. Mm-hmm. So um, how important is uh, video on demand and like streaming sites to an independent uh, movie maker? Well, I mean, you're just looking for your movies to be seen by people, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, any platform where people can watch your movies is definitely a good one. And it's, you know, it's rare that you see indie movies get like wide theatrical releases these days. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not like the heyday of the mid 90s when, you know, all these independent movies were like breaking box office records. Uh, it's been years since anything like that has happened. Um, 
And there's also just so much more content and so many ways to get it. And everybody can sort of watch whatever they want, whenever they want nowadays. And the competition for people's attention is, is higher than it's ever been in the history of the world. Um, however, you know, VOD as is, uh, in these streaming platforms, I think that's where, you know, the younger generation is, that's where they're watching stuff. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They're not uh, waiting for it to come, the movie to come on on Channel 7 at, at 8 o'clock. They're, <laughs> they want to watch it whenever they want. And, um, you know, back in the old school days, if you wanted to watch Nightmare on Elm Street and you went to the video store and all the copies were rented out, you weren't watching Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm-hmm. You're finding something else to watch. That problem does not exist for this modern generation. They can mm-hmm. watch whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, on their phone, on their tablet, in the toilet, on a plane, wherever they are, they can watch and access whatever they want. So um, it's just, you know, these are these are the platforms that, that provide us a chance for our movies to get seen. And so you gotta, you gotta love that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I wonder if like a cult kind of hit could come from one of these type of releases. And I haven't seen it happen too often, but I have a feeling that, you know, the companies like Uncorked, are going to figure out the secret sauce um, sooner than later. Mm-hmm. Um, they seem to be ta- they seem to be taking a lot of swings at the fences, and you know it's a matter of time before something gets knocked out of the park for them. And hopefully, you know, we'll be a part of that. And uh, you know, when that day comes, that'll be a good day for for all of us. Mm-hmm. I think like this year, though, like a movie like Terrifier, which I uh, don't believe in any theatrical release, is just uh, video on demand. Uh, it's really like a cult hit. So I do think it's possible for, uh, movies that are strictly video demand or DVD and stuff to, to, you know, to, to get a big following. I mean, I do think that there's definitely like a segment of people that like strictly like only to watch those types of movies, you mm-hmm. know, otherwise channels like lifetime movies wouldn't exist. <clears throat> you know, people want to watch people sort of like alternatives to the Hollywood sort of movies. And I mean, a show like yours wouldn't exist if, you know, you didn't like these types of movies. Um, You know, then it's always been like that since the beginning of time. I'm sure, you know, when Alfred Hitchcock, and by no means am I comparing myself to Alfred Hitchcock, so don't take that to mean that. But when he first was coming out, people thought that his shit was campy and kitschy, and it took some time for people to gravitate towards it. And I'm sure that's the case for a lot of guys, you know? Um... But, uh, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's something for everyone, you know what I mean? And I think that there's definitely like a segment of film fans that are out there that root for the underdog films and want to uncover a movie that people don't know and haven't heard of. They want to be the person that found it, you know? Mm-hmm. That's, they want the bragging rights of, of uncovering a, a hidden gem, so to speak. So, you know, there's definitely a market for these types of films. And, you know, you just hope that you're the gem that people find. So do you guys have a website or anything uh, for your upcoming movies? Uh, we are on social. Well, we have a website, 57films.com, uh, spelled out F-I-V-E-S-E-V-E-N, films.com. Uh, we're on social media and all those different platforms. And, um, yeah, there's, everything should be on there. Um, up next for us, we have a uh, coming in early 2019 is a uh, documentary on 
the um, rise and fall of the baseball card boom of the late 80s and oh, early really? 90s. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's a completely, you know, left turn from making these horror movies. Mm-hmm. But uh, I want to just, you know, tell any kind of story. If there's a story that's interesting to me, I want to I want to tell it. And mm-hmm. I thought that that was a, a really cool part of my childhood. Yeah, mine as well. I was a, I collected a lot of cards back in the day. You still yeah, subscribe so to what? tough stuff, and yeah, right. So everybody wants to know like what the hell happened. Like, remember, cards were supposed to be worth a fortune, and then what happened? Mm-hmm. So that's uh-huh. we have this investigative documentary that's finished that should be coming out in the next couple months in the United States. It's already out in Canada and doing pretty well. Um, but it's called Jack of All Trades. The trailer is on YouTube, and there's a oh, there's social media on Instagram and Facebook and everywhere. There's there's Jack of All Trades page that has the trailer and a bunch of cool stuff, and uh, that's what's next for us. Cool. Uh, did you collect cards yourself? I did actually. My dad actually owned uh, baseball card shops as a kid. Oh so wow! This was like an extremely personal kind of connection that I had to. Um, the hobby much more than most kids. Um, so yeah, I definitely was like, I grew up with it and then like one day it just kind of stopped. And as yeah. an adult, I went back and found my collection and thought it would be worth a fortune. And I went to try to sell it and it was worth like 50 bucks. And I was like, how the hell is that possible? <laughs> and that sort of spawned this whole, uh, documentary that we shot on, you know, what the hell happened. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a really cool movie. Uh, much different than Scarecrows. Yeah. But, uh, definitely a cool movie. Mm-hmm. I assume, because uh, I know just uh, locally, like, you know, I don't think there's any card shops around anymore, but it's kind of depressing to think, you know, there was uh, a lot of local card shops when I was younger, and I'd go there and, you know, buy whole boxes of cards and open them and stuff, and then uh, they just all vanished. Yeah, but in 1990, there was 10,000 baseball card shops in the United States. Now there's oh. probably, you know, a couple hundred, if even. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. But you can make parallels sort of to any sort of collectible of that sure. era. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, there's a lot of comic people, book shops, too. <laughs> right. Once, you know, once people, once something goes mainstream and becomes like a mainstream collectible where everybody who pulls a Ken Griffey Jr. is putting it into a plastic, then everybody's got one. And... They're all in good condition. So mm-hmm. the value obviously is not going to hold. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the Mickey Mantle rookie card was rare because it was rare. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card, which is, or Mark McGuire rookie card or Barry Bonds or whatever you collected. Mm-hmm. Everybody was put it in a plastic. Everyone bought comic books and put them right into the, right into the protective bag, you know, with the, with the little piece of cardboard behind it. Mm -hmm. so once everyone starts you know becoming aware that something is collectible then it sort of ruins the collectability of it or the value so there's a lot of lessons that were learned Mm -hmm. i'm sure but i don't i don't know and i don't want to give away too much of that story but you know there's definitely a a card industry that still exists um in 2018 Mm -hmm. and it's much different than the one you remember that's for sure yeah yeah, I was just like action figures because actually on my wall here because I'm a very cool guy. I have a a bunch of old WWF action figures in the wall, but it's the same thing. You know, when you're a kid, most people opened them, uh, like right. Star Wars figures, so that's why they're rare. And then 
Uh, later on, people just bought them and specifically kept them in the package. And then it's, right. Uh, not as rare then. No, that's that's exactly right. I mean, I have, I got some figures too. I'm not gonna lie. Um, uh-huh. I see, but I was a kid that grew up with my when my dad owned baseball card and comic book shop. I was sort of like smartened up to the point to that point. So, you know, when I would go to the store to buy LJN wrestling figures. Uh-huh. I would buy a Hulk Hogan to open, and I would buy like two or three to put away. <laughs> right. Um, so I already had that sort of mentality as a kid, mm-hmm. um, and I and I do have a couple of Hulksters, you know, still in the package. But you know, there's I, I love to go on eBay and look at the astronomical prices that you know oh, yeah. shows and, and Star Wars figures and wrestling figures are, are the asking price. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if I had an unlimited amount of money in my life, maybe I would waste some buying, like, Kamala <laughs> still in the yeah. package. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's fun to look at, that's for sure. Yeah, that the uh, I forget which one it is. It's, like, either one with the moon on the belly. I think it's the one with the moon on the yeah. belly. Is like, a crazy there's, amount of money the Hasbro one. Yeah. yeah, there's, like, a Kamala figure worth, like, 10 grand or something. Yeah. Um, but, you know... Uh, it's it's funny because, you know, the reason why that's worth money is because people our age who are in our 30s, 40s and, and above, we want to, we remember fondly, like we want to go back and, and find the stuff from our childhood. Mm-hmm. So maybe there will be a spark for baseball cards, you know, because maybe people will want to go and find a Griffey Jr. rookie card again because it reminds them of those days and they have kids now and they want their kids to kind of play with the shit that they played with. Um, you know, you never know. So, yeah. you know, I haven't looked I, these I, up. I yeah. say I haven't looked these up for a while. I haven't looked these up for a while, but I do have a, uh, I'm looking at the wall here. I've got a, a polka dot dusty roads. That one used to be worth a lot. I'm not sure if it still is. Oh, that's not. awesome. Yeah. You got the Mattel. You got the uh, the the Hasbro Mattel. Uh, yeah, yeah, the, the yeah on the wall. I have LJN ones, but I actually played with them, so they're not in the best shape. But uh, right. the, these ones, I I kept in the package and have on the wall. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. the Dusty's got to be really cool. Yeah, yeah I like people it. that have like there's people that collect these Funko Pops. Right. Um, and they don't take you know it's like they don't take them out of the package. And they just sort of keep them in the box and they put them on display in the box. And I'm thinking like, you know, I, I think they're cool too. I'm guilty of owning a few myself. But, you know, the reason why those other toys were worth money is because kids opened them up and played with them. And there was a generation of kids playing with the toys that got older and want to go back and find the toys that they played with still in the package. Yeah. The Funkos never got opened and played with. And there's like nobody that's ever going to be looking back at them as like, hey, I used to play with those when I was a kid when it's really 30 and 40 year olds buying them and just putting them on the shelf. <laughs> right. So, I think that's why they make so many like uh, for the wrestling again is why they make so many legends figures and stuff. Cause they are made for, uh, for adult collectors just to buy. Right. But I don't know how you'd really play with a pop figure either. Like if they're cool just to look at and put somewhere, but like if you open, I don't really know what you do with it to, to play with it. It doesn't have no, much I think or anything. They're good, like, desk, desk ornaments, I suppose. I mean, I have an Iron Sheik one that I'm looking at right now, and it's still <laughs> in the box. <laughs> um, it's not coming out of the box either. So, uh, yeah. yeah, you're yeah. right. It's like a bobblehead, but wrestling. Or, they've cut so many. They've covered every square inch of pop culture imaginable. 
Oh, I know. Um, those fun goes. I mean, there isn't a there isn't a licensee that they haven't tackled yet. Yeah, I was like not too long ago at the mall, and it was like Bob Ross one and Notorious yeah. B.I.D. Yeah, it just covers like you said everything you could ever. Some stuff I don't even know what it is. I was like, I don't know what this is, but it's a uh, <laughs> it's pretty cool looking. Yeah. Uh, by the way, Iron Sheik's the only guest I ever had on that hung up on me. Well, there you go. Well, you shouldn't have given him that option. <laughs> it's, uh, I got to ask about Donnie Darko. Because uh, when I mentioned okay. you're going to come on, a lot of people want to ask about Donnie Darko. So uh, just uh, how did you get the role in Donnie Darko to begin with? Um, did you ever see the movie Swingers? Yes. You know the scene where like Vince Vaughn is telling the story about like how he went into the audition and he nails the audition, and at the end, they're like, oh, but you're not 13? Right. That's sort of what happened to me. I, like, went in to the audition for Donnie Darko, and it was, like, all these little kids there, and I was much older than all of them, and I was like, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> and I called my agent at the time, and I was like, there's all 12-year-olds here. You know, what, what, what am I doing here? And they're like, well, they saw your picture. And I'm like what picture did you send them? <laughs> They're like, I, like it's an old one, but they, they've got it. And I'm like, okay, I'll just go in, but this is a waste of time. So I went in and I auditioned and, you know, we didn't really know what it was. It was like just advertised at that time. It was like, oh, you're auditioning for this Drew Barrymore movie. That's mm -hmm. how it was sort of pitched to the actors back then. And I went in and I read for it and then left and never thought anything of it. And I think initially... Donnie Darko was supposed to be maybe a 12-year-old kid. And for whatever reason, when they landed on Jake Gyllenhaal in the casting, it caused the rest of the kids to be older. And there, there, and there, there I was. <laughs> I was the one guy that was, like, older than everybody else that auditioned for it. Uh -huh. And uh, I ended up getting the part. <laughs> uh, really cool movie to be a part of. Yeah, um, Definitely, you know, as far as, you know, cult status, it doesn't get more culty or statusy than Don Darko. <laughs> uh -huh. And, you know, sort of, it feels like that's a, a credit that sort of carries weight no matter what generation of film fan you're talking to. So mm -hmm. it's really, it's really great that, it, you know, it's, it's, a lot of life is just a lot of, it's some a lot of it's talent, but a lot of it's luck, and this mm -hmm. is another one of those lucky opportunities that that ended up happening. And you know, a lot of people don't realize that, but that was also Seth Rogen's first movie. He's in Donnie Darko. He plays one of the classmates. Yeah, I should. I haven't seen it for a while. I was about in my late teens or twenty when it came out. I watched it a bunch of times when I was uh, probably in my twenties. I haven't seen it for quite I mean, a while. I didn't even I know mean, he was in it. That's a prime example of a movie that got became cult a cult hit without being a box office success. I mean, when the movie came out in theaters, it bombed completely. It made like $150,000 in the box office or something. It was done. And when it came out on DVD, it started getting discovered by college kids. Mm -hmm. And then it just spread and became this phenomenon so much so that like 2 years later it came back out in theaters again. Yeah, and uh, you know it's the it's the gift that keeps on giving. Mm -hmm. It's uh it's just a a great movie that still holds up, still entertaining, still confusing as fuck, uh -huh. and you know it was so much fun to be a part of, and um, 
like I said, it's it's a pretty good credit to to be able to to throw out there. Like if someone's like, oh, have you ever oh, seen yeah. anything that I know? I can just be like, ah, I was in this movie Donnie Darko, and they're like, <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> and you know. So that's it's definitely uh, it's definitely a cool one. The cool yeah. One. Yeah. So this because you mentioned you didn't really know what the movie was when you're auditioning. Uh, when you're filming it, do you still do you really have like a grasp on what the movie's about? Or later, not to like you actually see the finished movie. It was a very confusing movie to to understand, um, even when we were making it. And a lot of the, you know, it was a first-time director, fresh out of film school, who wrote it, Richard Kelly. Mm-hmm. And it was a bunch of veteran actors that were making up the cast. Like, you know, Patrick Swayze and Noah Wiley and Drew Barrymore and even the kids in the movie, like I had been an actor already for like 12 years or 15 years at the time I was in that. And, and Jake Gyllenhaal was a child actor and, um, you know, everybody sort of brought their own flavor to the table. And there was like a lot of improv on the set and a lot of ad-libbing and a lot of people just sort of making the characters their own that it sort of helped bring the quirky story to life in a way that like, even if you don't fully understand what's going on, you're still entertained by it, mm-hmm. um, which is something you sort of can't plan. It sort of just has to happen like that. And I remember watching the, the movie at Sundance when we first got to see the cut, and when the credits were rolling, people were sort of scratching their head like, what, what, what the fuck? Like, what <laughs> just happened? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, 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 you know, if you go and you watch a film like The Last Temptation of Christ, um, which is like a Martin Scorsese movie that not a lot of people have seen. It's a very similar story. And I think that this Donnie Darko, the best way to sort of explain what the hell's going on would be to tell somebody to watch the last temptation of Christ. And they would, you know, you see sort of like what maybe Richard Kelly was going for there. You know, like what happens if Jesus didn't die on the cross and he ended up getting down Mm-hmm. And then at the end, you know, he realizes, well, no, I needed to die. I was supposed to die there in order for everything to happen the way mm-hmm. that it's supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of Donnie Darko right there in a nutshell. Like he he's supposed to die in that when that when that engine falls mm-hmm. in order for the rest of the world to go on the way that it's supposed to. It's interesting. Um, yeah. It's not I a. Never it's got time travel elements to it, but it's not a time travel movie, so to speak, but, but it is one. I mean, it, there's no DeLorean, but there's definitely like alternate explanations that stem from real theories of time travel that are put in there. And I think that that sort of helps, it helps the mystery of the film because there are so many real kind of things that you can go into a black hole of research and sort of corroborate stuff that's from the movie that's actual real theory and real life stuff or the wormhole theories and stuff like that. Those are real. So it's not just something that he just made up and put in a movie. Um, so it's really cool, you know, and it touches upon a lot of things. It touches upon nostalgia because it takes place in like 1988. So there's like a whole bunch of cool 80s stuff in there, like the soundtrack and the costumes and the stuff that's going on there. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it touches upon some stuff for people who are into, like, sci-fi and horror. And even, like, black, dark comedy type stuff. There's, like, a lot of humor in the movie. Um, it's just a really, really good movie. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it holds up. 
And, uh, you know, like I said, I'm blessed to have been a part of that. And it's something that I'm definitely proud of for sure. And like I said, it carries weight. So, Mm -hmm. you know, even if I don't do, uh, and I probably will end up doing more acting in the future, but even if I didn't, I still, you know, I can hang my hat that I was was involved in some really cool projects. And that that would be definitely um, towards the top of the list for sure. Yeah. And uh, I have to say, uh, it's one of the few, uh, I don't know if you saw the director's cut, but it's a, a director's cut where it is like a different, totally different cut of the movie. Usually some comes out, say director's cut, and I'll have like a couple minutes of deleted scenes and it really doesn't make any difference. But uh, the director's cut's a lot longer. It explains more and even uh, has different, the music's different places and things are cut a little different. It's uh, it's worth checking out if uh, anyone out there has never seen the director's cut. Yeah, definitely like holds your hand a little bit more and kind of like lets you sort of understand a little bit better what what's going on for sure. Um, it's good. Listen, when you're making a movie, there's people you have to answer to, you know, even with Scarecrows or Jack of All Trades or any of our movies, you know, Scarecrows, originally there was 15 more minutes of that movie, but the distributors and the people in, in charge, they ha- they want the movie to be a certain length of time. So you have to make concessions. You have to cut something to get the movie to be 85 minutes so that it can be played uh, as a two-hour block on on, on on broadcast television, if that's the case. You know, so mm-hmm. stuff's got to go. And you have to make tough choices sometimes. And I think, though, for the most part, pacing of films ends up being a lot better at when you run a movie, especially like these types of movies at that length. And maybe Donnie Darko, was, was that, that was the case. Maybe it was just, you know, running too long for for the original um, inception of what they thought they had on their hands. But then mm-hmm. once the movie took off and became the huge cult classic that it was, it gave Richard a chance to be like, okay, let me t- show you what I originally turned in. Because that's the story that I really wanted to tell. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, he gets to have that original vision out there. Pretty mm-hmm. cool. Definitely. It's not like one of those that- like National Lampoon... Not the Lampoon movies that's like unrated with extra boobs. It's like not <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, Shane Sandberg sent this in. I saw does it. What's the point of living if you don't have a dick? You know, he's not wrong. <laughs> yeah. You know? All right. All right. I... So, uh, Scarecrows coming out in December, early December, December 11th, I believe, is the date. December 11th. Uh, I yeah, and uh, where is that going to be? Like on all the video demand sites? As far as I know, yeah, it's going to be on all the VOD sites, uh, Redbox, those types of places, and I think it's going to be available to own on Blu-ray in the new year. Um, and who knows? You know, it's like these types of movies. Uh, a lot of them are like little engines, and some of them could, and maybe this will be one of those. Um, been getting uh, really cool coverage and a lot of people who watch it who can check you know their sense of oscars at the door are enjoying the movie and Uh for what it is it delivers and for what we are expected to be it delivers and if you want to make some popcorn and watch a movie that you you don't you don't have to like think too much and you can just have a couple laughs and a couple screams look at some, some decent looking kids getting killed, then uh, this is the movie for you. 
and uh, <laughs> hopefully we'll be making more of these in the future. Very cool. And I also throw out there is a lot of lip sewing in the movie, which uh, is yeah. cringy to me. So. <laughs> Yes, I mean, how are you supposed to get people to not scream for help um, <laughs> other than to sew their mouths shut? Right, right. That's, that, that, that that's like always been my motto. That was, that was a childhood threat. Uh, <laughs> that's very true. Kid. Like, hey, if you don't shut up, I'm going to zip it shut. And uh, <laughs> I always thought that was such an empty threat. You know, I never took it seriously. <laughs> right, and now right. uh, I got to do it in a movie, so... There you go. That's my that's my nod to all the parents of the eighties uh, and nineties. <laughs> right, right. Very cool. It's been very fun to talk to you, and I hope people check out Scarecrows, and I hope you keep making cool movies. We'll have you back on. Yeah, that would be great. Thanks for supporting independent films, and definitely thanks for having me on and supporting Scarecrows. And hopefully, uh, you'll enjoy it, and the people listening will enjoy it, and we'll get to do this again. Uh, good luck to you, and have a happy holiday season, and. Uh, Hopefully we'll connect again in 2019 to talk about the next one. Very good. Thanks, and you have a great uh, holiday season as well. All right. Take care, man. Thanks.
This is Larry Fessenden from Glass Eye Picks, and you're listening to Without Your Head. <laughs> <laughs> 